and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. We have a very special show for you today, so let's get right to it. Senior Agents of Change Fellow, MD, MPH candidate, and Push Buffalo's policy specialist, Karthik Amarnath, is taking things over today. He spoke with Dr. Rupa Mariah and Dr. Raj Patel, who are authors of the book Inflamed Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice, published last year. Rupa Mariah is an associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and founder and executive director of the Deep Medicine Circle, a worker-directed nonprofit committed to healing the wounds of colonialism through food, medicine, story, learning, and restoration. She is also a co-founder of the Do No Harm Coalition, and at the invitation of Lakota elders, she is helping to develop a clinic to decolonize food and medicine in Lakota territory to serve the indigenous communities. Raj Patel is a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning filmmaker, and research professor in the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. He co-hosts his own podcast on food politics, The Secret Ingredient. And last year, he co-directed and produced an award-winning documentary, The Ants and the Grasshopper. He has testified about the causes of the global food crisis to the U.S., U.K., and E.U. governments, published in political, economic, philosophy, and health journals, and written for a whole bunch of influential newspapers like the New York Times, the LA Times, the Guardian, and he is a member of the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems. Rupa Raj and Karthik talk about how practitioners of modern medicine and public health are trained to be biomedical technicians rather than healers. They talk about how the medical system comes into conflict with climate justice, how colonialism and capitalism impact human physiology and contribute to what is seen in the clinic and what to do about the overrepresentation of South Asians in American medical professions and other occupations that sustain the systems that make us sick. They also talk about what they mean by deep medicine, why it matters, and how it can be applied by health and environmental practitioners and institutions. Be sure to check out Rupa and Raj's new book, where they discuss many of these topics much more in depth. Once again, that book is titled Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. Enjoy the show. Okay, we are here with Rupa and Raj for the Agents of Change podcast. Thank you both for being here. Thanks so much for having us. Um. So I thought we could start off with an intro question for listeners who don't know who you might be or what what work you're involved in. So you've both written quite intentionally and beautifully about um, how you draw from your life experiences and family histories in ways that inform the work that you do. Um, So to start off with, could you briefly share about um, who you are and how that has gotten you to where you're at. Oh my. Okay. Here we go. Let's see. Um, I was born to 
Punjabi immigrants in what is now occupied and unceded Ramatashaloni territory, what has always been what is now called Mountain View, California. Uh, my parents uh, came here, um, you know, looking for a better life for their children after the damage of colonialism had, you know, set so much in disarray in Punjab, where they're from. Um, my ancestors are farmers and warriors and um, concubines and, you know, everything in between, um, artists, mathematicians. Um, and I, um, yeah, just grew up very drawn to the beauty of this place um, where I live in the what's called San Francisco Bay Area the smell of the bay groves, the the sound of the great horned owls, the feeling of a redwood um, grove, the beauty of the ocean here. I was watching the moon rise. It was full yesterday as I was driving over the Bay Bridge home to Oakland, where I live now, and just really um, grateful to be a part of this landscape here and to be working in this place um, amongst so many amazing people. So that's me. Um, and goodness, well, that's, that's, a, that's a hard one to follow. I, I, I'm Raj Patel. I'm, I'm also a sort of product of empire. You know, my, my uh, family were born in what Kenya and Fiji, and I was born in London. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm very much also a product of that, that sort of uh, causal vector. I, I, when I first saw hunger in India, uh, I lost my shit. I was, oh, I don't know, five years old, but I carried that image uh, back with me to the UK. And I've you know, honestly, I've been working on hunger uh, issues ever since. So I've, I've pinged around, um, uh, a number of places. I worked at the UN, I worked for and against the world bank, uh, and even infiltrated the world trade organization, uh, to learn more about, you know, international trade policies and to, to, to do some work with, uh, groups like, uh, you know, La Villa Campesina, the international peasant, uh, organization around, uh, food and hunger. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I've done, uh, I, I've studied and, uh, researched uh, food systems and capitalism um, and why it is a bad thing. Uh, and that's kept me, uh, you know, in worlds of writing and communication and activism um, over, you know, the course of a few books and now a film uh, uh, till now where I find myself in occupied Texas, the state that fought for slavery twice. Uh, it's important to say that just because our Lieutenant Governor here uh, in Texas has been pointing out that um, uh, there's a new institute here at the University of Texas called the Liberty Institute, uh, the sole purpose of which is to stop uh, people being free to teach things. Um, so uh, in a tweet that was one of those spectacular self-owns I've ever seen, um, yeah, our lieutenant governor said uh, that you know, the Liberty Institute was about shutting us down uh, and shutting down the kinds of conversation we're about to have. So I'm looking forward to having it. All right, I, I appreciate the energy. Um... So both of both of you are here uh, at the same time because you uh, both co-authored a book that came, that was released a few months ago. Um, and for listeners who aren't familiar with your book, um, what what is it about? What led to its inception? And um, describe specifically what you mean by deep medicine. It is about. It is about the ways in which our bodies and our planet and our societies are damaged through the same processes um, that brought Raj and I here to, you know, Turtle Island. Um, it's it's about understanding the forces that have shaped our world and actually shaped our immune responses and have shaped our cellular responses, and that these things are translated 
from the social structures around us down into the very um, into the very reactions and interactions of ourselves with our own bodies and with the you know with the more than human entities around us that are required for our health, such as the microbes and the viruses and the archaea that live around us and that support and um, shape um, how our bodies respond to the environment. Um, and so uh, this book, Inflamed, it was such a joy to write it with Raj. Through the process of writing it, we realized that Raj and I are related through many families, um, which has been kind of fun. Um, but it, it's, you know, deep medicine is what's happening right now with the Oakland Unified School District with two, uh, uh, two educators, two black educators who've been sitting for 18 days in front of a school on hunger strike. And I've been called to um, offer my medical support and the Do No Harm Coalition is supporting all the med students and young doctors. Because these teachers know that when you shut down schools, so there were 12 schools on the chopping block, all in the black, you know, predominantly black schools, black and brown in the flatlands of Oakland, which is the place of Oakland, hardest hit by air pollution, hardest hit by COVID, hardest hit by um, all the toxic um, exposomes or exposures that have been created to destroy black bodies in this society. And school closures um, is just another part of that damage. And so when Moses Omolade and Andre Sanchez sit and put their bodies on the line by starving themselves to bring attention to the fact that closing these schools is a way of further harming these communities, privatizing the public school system is a way of harming these communities. The, the, the same colonial tactics that are used to disrupt and destroy um, those um, you know, community-led and publicly-owned commons in other countries that the United States still engages in around the world is happening right here in Oakland, is happening all over the United States with the public school structure. So when they sit there and they do this hunger strike, they are engaging in deep medicine. They are understanding that that the consequence of closing the schools isn't just that kids have to be moved to other schools. It's destroying a heart of a community. And it's um, letting those kids know that their education, that their community is not important. And what that leads to in terms of trauma responses, stress responses for the families, for the children, for the communities, is part of that damage cycle that signals inflammation and inflammatory disease by the time these kids are, you know, 15, 16, 20. When I was first called to intervene in this hunger strike and support the health of the two hunger strikers, that we, you know, checked their labs and checked their blood and checked everything. And, you know, they look like healthy, you know, 30-something-year-old black bodies. Um, but when you look a little closer, you see already the traces of chronic inflammatory disease in the body um, that are that were unknown to these hunger strikers that made this experience way more perilous. So deep medicine is 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 the you know, stop to stop thinking about our health as something that is you can seek solely as an individual. That yes, you must go as an individual to take care of yourself. But if that's where you stop, that's gonna um, that is the that is not an acceptable way of moving the needle on health parameters more broadly. And so when we engage in strikes, when we withhold our labor, when we push and force the structures that are damaging us to become structures of repair and structures of care, when we transform them, then we can have better health outcomes, not just for our one individual self, but our whole community. And not only that, the communities of all the other entities 
that are interrelated and interwoven in their existences with ours. Um, so it's starting to understand those, um, the, the weaving together of our relationships that still exist, that colonial medicine and colonial capitalism actually um, forces us to sever those consciousness, that consciousness, and, um, and, and actually purposefully sever those relationships. Um, so deep medicine is bringing back those relationships. But this is, a, you know, obviously a much longer conversation. But I've just been thinking about Moses and Andre as they've been, you know, um, as they've been sitting with me every day and talking about this, um, what it means to put their bodies on the line to get health for their children through keeping a school open. So a lot of listeners of the podcast come from the medical field or allied health professions, um, public health, environmental health sciences, and that sort of thing. And we've definitely been socialized in this country to uh, to cringe and potentially run away when we hear these buzzwords like colonialism or colonial capitalism. And um, I was wondering if you could speak to why it is important for us to understand today's maladies um, from the context of the fact that this country is born out of colonial capitalism. Well, uh, you know, th th there is the temptation to think, well, you know, uh, uh, words like capitalism and uh, colonialism are just the, you know, the language of the woke crowd. And it really just doesn't have anything to do with uh, what I'm doing in my noble profession as a, as a, as, as part of the, the, you know, the, the frontline workers lifting up people's health uh, and battling all this misinformation on COVID. And, and so, no, I, you know, don't, don't you just come with your capitalism and colonialism? You, you have no idea. And of course, Rupert is uh, that frontline medical worker. And it, medicine has always been in the front lines, but not in the way that you think. Um, you know, th there is this idea that, uh, you know, uh, Columbus came over uh, and then, you know, after he wreaked havoc and the, the, you know, after the genocide, th there were a bunch of very well-meaning uh, medical professionals who wore their white coats and sort of dabbed the, the, the brows of the people who had been slaughtered saying, oh, we're awfully sorry, but we're not with him. Uh, we're, we're, we're part of, you know, we're part of, the, we, don't, we don't believe in colonialism and capitalism. We're, we're, we're the good guys. Uh, and of course, uh, that is rubbish. Uh, and it's important to remember that the medical profession is part of the frontier of colonialism and capitalism. It, you know, we wouldn't have genocide, we wouldn't have the genocides uh, that we've seen in Turtle Island uh, without the medical profession. Um, and if you think, well, that was then, uh, obviously, there was some, a few bad apples, uh, but uh, everything's gonna be fine now. Bear in mind, what one of, one of the, 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 the sort of shocking statistics that we found in our uh, research was just uh, that, you know, in 2016, when 50%, 56% of white Americans believed the lie that black skin is thicker than white skin. Now, the, you know, this, this bio myth is uh, part of what allows white folk to believe that black people don't feel as much pain as white people do, because th the skin is thicker. Uh, so it's, it's a lie, it's rubbish, and it's uh, a sort of a, a medical artifact of racism. Uh, but 56% of white folk believe that in 2016. 40% of incoming white medical students uh, believed that. And after four years of medical training, 20% still believed it. Now, you, you, you can't have that kind of data uh, and believe that medis medicine somehow sits above uh, the, the fray of society. Medicine is not just part of society, but it, in fact, uh, in its front lines and its worst manifestations, is actually part of the mechanisms of oppression. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the ways that we, we talk about this in Inflamed is uh, to say, well, look, you know, the, the, the way that medical, you know, that, that medicine individualizes 
problems, blames patients for you know, being uncompliant and not being, uh, you know, not, not, just not taking their bloody medicine when they should, uh, when the diseases, for example, like diabetes that they suffer uh, are ones that are socially generated and their and patients' capacities to be able to comply, uh, and what an interesting word that is uh, from, you know, from the medical profession, uh, you know, patients' capacities to be able to both afford insulin and rent and food and care uh, are constrained by precisely capitalism. So, I mean, I, I think that uh, for folk who, who shudder a little at the idea of invoking the words colonialism and capitalism, um, it's really worth asking, why are you so nervous about this? Wh where, do, where does our nervousness come from? Um, if, if capitalism's so great, why is it still weird to say it? I mean, I, I was at Berkeley teaching and I said the word capitalism in a discussion of sort of liberal foodies, and it was like I'd farted in a lift. Uh, people, people were just not interested in saying the word capitalism at Berkeley. And you would think, you know, if there is, if there is a sort of temple of wokeness, it would be there. And even there, the liberal skin's, skin crawls. Why? What's so difficult about saying it if it's good? And what's so hard about uh, acknowledging that it's bad if you don't like it? Raj, you just mentioned uh, briefly just how profoundly embedded um, the medical system is within capitalism. Um, so... Jumping off of that, um, one thing that I thought might be fun to do in preparation for this conversation was to crowdsource questions from folks who've read your book, um, and some of them might actually be friends of yours. Uh, so the first question I have uh, comes from one of Rupa's students at UCSF, um, and she asks, how does medicine come into conflict with local ecology, climate justice, and equity? So, for example, if the healthcare sector were a country, it would be the fifth largest emitter in the world. Um, so, with that in mind, what are some of the contradictions at play when we say that everyone deserves healthcare when the health system itself is so deeply embedded within the violent system that is colonial capitalism? I mean, there is no real contradiction because the healthcare system that we live in is not, <laughs> doesn't want healthcare for all. It's healthcare for some and it's some healthcare for some and more healthcare for others. It's extremely inequitable. There's nothing equitable about it. It's never been equitable. Even within everyone who has access to the healthcare, once you get into the healthcare system and you go for surgery, if you're a woman and you happen to have a male surgeon, you're going to have a 30% increase likelihood of dying from that surgery just because he's a man um, who performed the surgery on you. So that patriarchy, which is a part of the colonial project and then part of the architecture of dominance, is 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 part of how we understand ourselves and operate within the medical system. So this idea, this you know, very um, this very important idea that everyone should have healthcare and everyone should have access to a healthy um, environment that they live in is a, a a very important idea. But it's not a part of the healthcare system, not at all. Um, as we just saw as the single payer um, bill just fell flat on its face, thanks to the cowardice of Ash Kara on this, um, you know, California state legislature um, on the on the assembly floor. Um, it there's so many vested interests in keeping the healthcare system based very firmly in a capitalist colonial um, space. And so if we want um 
you know, a healthcare system that is a part of the solution of climate justice, environmental justice, working within the local economies and ecologies to uplift people, then we are going to have to fight for it and and dismantle, simultaneously dismantle this one and move the power into building a better one. Um, and that is hard, hard work. And it's the work of many different people and sectors and groups. Um, but that absolutely is the the work of the day. That is the work of, that is the deep medicine is to restructure the system, not to simply try to put a, you know, a climate person in charge of how we recycle at UCSF. Um, that's not it. Um, it is looking at where we source our food from. Why, when we have so much food we buy through UCSF, are we buying it through Cisco? When we have some of the best farms and small farms in the entire country within 150 miles from here, we could support all of their livelihoods of those farmers by simply advancing contracts, doing like a giant scale CSA um, to get that food you know, brought in to feed the people healthy organic food. But instead I walk into the candy store, to the, what do you call it? The gift shop at the the base of the hospital at the children's hospital and there's an entire wall of you know cancer producing um substances available for ch for children highly processed high, lots of sugar lots of high fructose corn syrup lots of artificial flavors artificial coloring that stuff is toxic it's like selling cigarettes to children and we do it um, in the hospital itself. And so the amount of contradictions that are present in, or you apparent uh, contradictions that are present, just belie the fact that it was never really there for the health of the community. It was never really there for the health of everybody. It's, it's there for a profit for these industries. Um, that's what it's been constructed for. That's how it operates. Um, and so if we want something that operates differently, we're going to have to fight for it and we're going to have to um, keep building the alternatives, which, are, you know, is happening right now. You know, Rupa, did you hear this uh, thing about um, emissions from uh, the from the NHS? Um, so th th there was a story about, um, I mean, you know, we began this question with observing that, that medicine is 10 percent of uh, of 10 you percent know, of U.S. emissions or something. Um, and uh, in Britain, the NHS did an audit of where its carbon footprint was, uh, and 25% of its uh, greenhouse gas emissions come from medicines. Uh, and the, the two sort of big individual single points of that are one in anesthetics and the other in uh, the propellant in inhalers. Um, and so uh, the, you know, the, the story is that in, you know, one of the things that they want uh, to do to green the NHS is to move people away from propellant driven inhalers to, you know, these sort of powder based disc or whatever they are. Um, and, uh, you know, absent from this conversation is anything about air pollution, right? You know, the, the, it's, it's, it's not, well, why do we have so many bloody asthmatics in the first place? It's, oh, yeah, no, we've, you know, we, we've definitely got to uh, make sure that these asthmatics footprint, right, individualizing yet again, uh, is shrunk rather than understanding the sort of structural causes of why it is that, that you know, these medicines are required. Which is why this book was so much fun to write with Raj Patel, not just for his utter charm and and um, silliness, yeah. but but <laughs> but the silence, which you, we did that over Zoom, so it was fine. But, <laughs> but his, um, you know, the way that Raj is able to zoom out like that is so. It's that's the that's the whole point of deep medicine is to stop 
fetishizing the individual as the site of disease or the site of the solution and to start looking at how these things are actually built through um, through society and through choices that we're making as a society or that actually we, the people, are not making, um, but that you know very few people are making and we suffer the consequences of. Um, and so when we say that diabetes is a socially generated disease, that is a very important thing to understand because that means that um, rates are well. If 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 there's a prof, if there's if there's a reason for corporations to gain from that phenomenon, that 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 phenomenon won't it won't stop. It won't. It'll just keep going. Um, and so if we want to be saving our you know our eyes, our kidneys, our hearts, our brains from the assault of diabetes, the high insulin levels, the high um, glucose levels in the blood and the toxicities that these produce, we have to start generating a different kind of social exposure and a different exposome. Um, And that's what we talk about in the book. And deep medicine is really operating on the level of the exposome. Let's change the exposome so that we can have less damage to our bodies and to the planet. Yeah, you both touched on, you know, how the health system operates. It's many institutions and what their institutional priorities are and how those are, in fact, not necessarily aligned with um, the priority that is health and wellness that we would assume um, among these institutions. So um, someone who works at the NIH and has read your book um, has asked me to ask you, (laughs) um, how can institutions relevant to health and ecology um, such as the NIH, CDC, FDA, EPA, et cetera. Um, how, in an ideal world, how would they you know, operate with more of a deep medicine approach from your perspective? They would move their funding from solutions that, um, again, hyper-individualize the problem. Um, so maybe spending less money on genetic analysis of each individual and how they will individually respond to an individual therapy um, that costs $37,000 a shot, for example, and start looking at how the NIH can start shutting down the toxic metal foundry in East Oakland that's causing you know air pollution so that the people who live in that neighborhood die 10 years earlier than people who live like five miles away that the NIH can start mobilizing funding to start um, dismantling the sugar industry, um, to dismantling the hold of of food subsidies going to these monocropping agricultural projects, to start reimagining the food system to be one that actually heals people instead of harms them. Um, So there's so many levels at which the NIH could move their funding to support um, community immunity, wellness of people from from the place in which they live, um, to empower them to to mobilize actions on things that most of these communities have already identified are a problem. Uranium mines in Navajo territory and Diné territory um, here in East Oakland, where I live, there's like the community knows exactly what's poisoning them and making them sick. Um, so the NIH could just call those communities and say, hey what do you think would help your diabetes, asthma, and Alzheimer's rates? And they would outline it. You know, our, our communities are over-policed. Our communities don't, are, you're shutting down our schools. 
We're forced to breathe toxic air. There's no trees planted in our neighborhoods. We're seven degrees hotter than the rest of Oakland. Um, there's no clean water. There's lead in our paint, in our ground that our children are exposed to. So like all the sum of all of these exposures are going to drive these illnesses. So instead of obsessing over, you know, the one shot that's $37,000 a shot and how one person will respond to it, let's start looking at population level health and solutions that are really driven by community groups. So that's how I would say, you know, that's how we can move these things in in forward. And you- I mean, that's, uh, you know, that idea of communities holding knowledge is pretty central to, you know, the, the, the ideas in Inflamed, right? That, that um, you know, it, 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 this book has just a ton of references at the end. And uh, it's because we love science. Uh, and you know, in, in the sort of colonial history of the National Academies, uh, in, you know, in, in the institutions of the university, um, part of the, the, the sort of founding ideas were that there are some people who can know things and some people who can't, uh, just as in the same way that, right, um, you know, there are some people who can feel things and other people who can't, or whose feelings matter and whose feelings don't, or whose knowledge matters and whose knowledge doesn't. Uh, and generally in the history of the National Academies, um, the folks whose knowledge doesn't matter are working class communities, are communities of color, are indigenous folk. Um, and those communities have knowledge. Uh, and so, you know, what, what we're offering in Inflamed is not uh, a kind of burn it down approach, um, though, uh, though we do appreciate the, the value of a good control burn. Um, what, we're, what we're interested in is, uh, you know, first of all, that, that you know, these institutions should stop the harm that they're doing. Just stop. That's, that's actually doing something good. Stop it. Uh, but also recognizing that good science comes from good peer review, and many peers have been denied a chance to review, and many peers' knowledge has been denied the chance to be considered as knowledge, even though, in fact, it is, and it is science. Uh, And so that's, you know, I mean, that I think is really difficult. I'm I'm in conversation with the National Academies right now around some of their uh, obesity work, Um, and they're in the process of understanding that obesity um, isn't a disease. Uh, It is something that comes uh, as a result of a range of other social phenomena uh, and that, you know, understanding that obesity is not a disease, but is in fact something that is, uh, you know, we're gradually understanding as a comorbidity and hopefully, you know, the the sort of fat shaming idea that goes behind that gets to be named and recognized for what it is, but then we get to move to think about community power as part of that that discussion and community knowledge and understanding why, you know, what are the vectors uh, of high BMI then all of a sudden that becomes a much more interesting conversation, but it dilutes the power of the academies to, to, to be, you know, sort of lo, loci of knowledge. And that's a good thing. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I think that that's one of the things we talk about in Inflamed is how certain kinds of knowledge has always been marginalized under capitalism and under colonialism. Uh, and that knowledge actually is the knowledge that's required for us to save ourselves. Yeah, take, for example, the work of... Um... Tiny Gray Garcia, poverty scholars in East Oakland um, with Poor Magazine and how, you know, she's formerly unhoused and it works with other unhoused and formerly unhoused people to advance solutions of poor people, like basically building their own housing. Um, take that versus here at UCSF, uh, Mark Bunnikoff, you know, billionaire gives, bestows upon the university a $30 million fund to start a, you know, study of homelessness. 
you know, instead of just like buying those people <laughs> houses, the 8,000 people on the streets of San Francisco, but we know that, you know, we don't actually need to study it. And it almost becomes obscene to study it. Like let's study the impacts of um, how colonialism and capitalism crushes the body and see what we get as an outcome with this, you know, destroyed humanity and dignity of a person on the streets of San Francisco. So that's where the, the, you know, the, the problem is thinking that the solutions will come from the top, that the solutions will come from the academy, people who have no lived experience but are studying it, as opposed to the people on the ground who can tell you exactly what they need. They need wraparound services. They need mental health services. They need a home where they can lock the door and be safe. They need a community to live with. You know, the, the things that our community members say um, are the solutions. They're not the thing that needs to be studied. Those are the solutions. And so that's how, you know, that's the work of decolonizing is understanding that, you know, power must be redistributed. And it's been purposefully um, kept away from those people who are suffering the most from the impacts. You know, when we think about you know, fat shaming, there should be capitalist shaming. There should be like, let's shame the real, you know, the real source of the pathology, not the body's response to that pathology. The, 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 the body is just doing what it does in the face of such violence. To that and, you know, really identifying the source of pathology, being able to meaningfully listen to the very people who are in question for a particular research project or health-related investigation, um, clinical practitioners, public health practitioner, practitioners, um, you know, aren't trained in in any of these skill sets. Um, so, what kind of curricular changes would you see in terms of how um, practitioners are trained in an ideal world? And um, Raj Rupa mentioned that you know the asset you provided to the book was really providing that macro view, understanding the political and economic systems uh, related to the physiological outcomes. Um, and given your career investigating, you know, system, food systems, farming, capitalism, and how they can cause social harm, do you have any recommendations on like particular social theorists or anything in the humanities that might be legible for people who might be invested in this kind of approach, but don't have the access to where to start. I, can I just say, if I were to design public health training and medical training, the first year would just be spent listening to community members. So if you're going to school in San Francisco, <clears throat> you go sit with Tiny Gray Garcia, you go sit with Karina Gould, the indigenous Ohlone elder, you go sit with um, Kat Brooks um, with Anti-Police Terror Project, you go sit with Moses Omolade, who's sitting in front of Westlake um, middle school starving himself, that you start, you go to those places where people are suffering and you just sit and you listen because doctors are terrible at listening. We interrupt our patients within the first 11 seconds. We are not there to listen to what people are experiencing. We are there to enforce our agendas and just get, you know, get on with the next thing. Um, and so that that art of listening is lost upon us in colonial medicine and and in public health as well. So I think that um, assuming that you are not an expert and starting to listen to the real experts is what I would design the first year of curriculum. And then in terms of reading, there's so much good reading to to do. Um, I think everybody right now should you know you know there's like 
people used to go do like a year of service, right? Public service. I'd say every single person coming out of high school should go and be on a pipeline frontline resistance camp with indigenous grandmothers because they are the most effective people at lowering greenhouse gases. And if we want our youth to understand what is happening, what has happened and where we need to go, that would be the boot camp I'd recommend for every, you know, graduating senior before they go to college. Just go and, you know, serve some time, cook some meals, take out some trash, uh, do whatever the grannies tell you. Um, that would be probably the most useful thing that I think people could do. But in terms of reading, um, I know Franz Fanon is a is a great place to start. Um, looking at um, some of the work. Um, of Linda Smith in um, decolonizing methodologies, understanding, you know, how to think about these things in different ways. There's a, a lot of incredible indigenous authors and, and writers um, who are doing this decolonizing work also um, out of Africa. You know, and, and uh, uh, it's it's not as if I have a monopoly on systems thinking. I mean, you know, Rupa, uh, I mean, th that was the joy of, of doing this book is that, that you know, we, we sort of, uh, melted into each other in a um you know in, in a in a beautiful zoom sponsored way um uh, with uh you know in, in terms of our sort of knowledge and expertise and ideas um and so that that's i mean if, if people are looking for something to read i recommend inflamed by rupa maria and raj patel um i mean honestly we we, we you know this book is designed in part for folk in the healthcare community to be able to um hook through what y'all already know about healthcare and understand where it sits uh, in broader worlds of social science. Um, and yes, I mean, you know, <clears throat> uh, we, we, we drew on just so much in terms of poetry. Uh, so Alison Adele Hedge Coke's uh, beautiful poem, Pando. Pando is, we, we had permission for her to, to have it in the book, but you know, there's, there's poetry, there's indigenous history. Our history is the future by Nick Estes is, is, is something we, we particularly enjoyed um, as, as we were, uh, reading the book, um, and yeah, Fanon uh, is you know, Franz Fanon's work is just required reading for health professionals because he was a health professional engaged in the work of decolonization, uh, and you know it's it's worth just looking to him. Um, but also, you know, the condition of the working class in England, uh, Engels, it's a it's an epidemiological textbook, uh, but it's also readable enough to break your heart even now. Um, and it's 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 a really lovely book, uh, and it was you know it, it it comes at the same time as you know uh, Friedrich von Virchow's work, um, and so there's lots in the medical world uh, that provides the bridge for social science. But just you know, uh, uh, you know we have it all in Inflamed, and uh, you know which is available from all good independent bookstores. Uh, I'm contractually required to say. Thanks for that. Um, so. This question is sort of particular, but um, let's let's give it a shot. So everyone in this conversation is of South Asian descent. We're part of numerous South Asian diasporas, um, at least within an American context, but not limited to the American context. Um, South Asians are overrepresented in the medical field, um, along with other occupations that, um, you know, are professional occupations and sustain the systems that impact our health. So examples would be finance and law. Um, your book covers debt and the impact, health impacts of debt, for example. Um, do you see any value in organizing South Asian clinicians and other professionals 
given our overrepresentation and as a colonized peoples ourselves, um, in terms, especially with the fact that, you know, these professions are so essential to sustaining the systems that make us sick. Yes. <laughs> Especially because some of the my South Asian colleagues are like the worst behaviors when it comes to uh, medical racism. Um, so just because everyone's brown, uh, skin folk ain't kin folk, right? So just because everyone's brown doesn't mean that everyone is down with understanding how systems of racial hierarchy and caste um, play a part in 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 those power structures today. So I think that this work of education and um, unlearning is something that we have to do together as as South Asian community. And for me, that's been some of the most beautiful um, connections I've had are with people fighting, you know, casteist um, violence and and dynamics and um, people fighting um, for, you know, fighting anti-Black racism here in Oakland and meeting other South Asians who are involved in this work is, is for me probably one of the most, I mean, this is what happened when I met Raj and his wife, Minnie, I just felt like I found my family. Like this is my, you know, these are the people who make sense to me and I like to work with and, and, and be with and sit and break bread or roti with. Um, and so that, that, um, that is, that is actually extremely important that we bring our aunties and uncles and our cousins and our community along in this work um, because our presence here as settlers in, on stolen land is important to become aware of who we are and where we are and what the presence of our diaspora does and how we carry with us our caste violence and our and all those things that are they don't just disappear from us as we you know end up ceding other territories. Um, so absolutely, this is very critical work. Yeah, I mean, I, I met I met my partner through uh, the Alliance of South Asians Taking Action, which is a group in. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying this is like you know woke Desi Tinder, um, but I'm, I'm saying it because um, it it was an organization that very actively took a side in class uh, divisions in the South Asian community. Right, this is an organization uh, that fought for. The rights of trafficked women against a powerful and politically politically connected Desi landlord uh, in uh, in Berkeley, and it, it, that was how it started. Uh, and then, through understandings of how race is the modality through which class is lived, and understanding that class privilege needs to be consigned to the pyre, that we need to engage in a process of class suicide, um, but that, that modality will always involve some sort of inflection through race. Um, and through the ways in which we're interpolated here in, in this particular part of the world in this moment, that activism matters so that we can call out, our, you know, uh, upper class Hindutva uh, family members, um, because, you know, I mean, I, I, I want to bring my aunties and uncles along. I also recognize that they are part of the problem. Um, and, you know, many, many of my family are Hindu fascists. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I mean, I, I think organize, one has to recognize what the, the, the lines are in this battle. Um, and as Rupa saying, you know, the, 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 this is uh, a battle line where you do have people who are pretending that, uh, you know, caste doesn't exist. And no, but certainly pretending that class doesn't exist uh, and that who are driving these kinds of divisions around, you know, Hindu supremacy uh, in the South Asian community that are absolutely vile. 
Um, and ultimately, you know, there's, they are picking a side in the class struggle. And that's really important to remember because purely identitarian organizing is, you know, is, is a sort of death sentence here. And that's why I liked Asata. Um, is because it was uh, an organization that really picked a side in this class battle. Uh, and this, that side was um, not accidentally the side of workers, uh, of exploited women and trafficked women uh, and women surviving domestic abuse. So uh, that's, you know, th this is to say, yes, there is definitely a role here uh, and that many, uh, many South Asians uh, and part of, the, part of the diaspora are uh, enemies in this, in this war. If you can leave us with some takeaways, especially during these unprecedented, uh, the buzzword everyone's using these days, unprecedented times, challenging times. Um, there's a lot of darkness out there. Where do you both um, draw inspiration from? And where? what are your suggestions for folks who are aligned with you, interested in your approach to these issues? Um, what would you suggest they do in terms of determining where they belong in these bigger decolonial struggles for uh, for justice? Um, so the, the um, look, if you want to figure out where you are, you just need to find the right psychiatrist and lie down on the bench. And obviously, no. Um, so look, the, 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 this whole process of figuring out where you belong in the struggle is something you only find out by trying to fit, trying to trying your hand in struggle. This is not the sort of thing that you can figure out with a notebook and a long walk on a beach. Um, this is practical and engaged work with other beings. Um, so actually, no, I, I lie. I mean, you, the, the, there are ways in which being on a beach put, puts you in touch with so many powerful forces and powerful beings, and that's and that's a good thing. Uh, but ultimately, here we are, um, hollow biomes that call ourselves human, and here we are uh, trying to figure out how it is that we relate to one another. That's work that you can't do on your own. And in any case, you are not a single being. So, you know, the advice here is to get involved in the struggle, uh, to roll up your sleeves and start engaging in, uh, you know, finding these movements. And, you know, if, if you're in, uh, you know, the, in, in what is currently called the United States, then, you know, look at the kinds of organizations that are trying to reconstruct and build through this, like the Deep Medicine Circle, uh, an organization that Rupa founded and which I'm honored to be uh, the treasurer. So over to you, Rupa. Yeah, that's what's bringing me a lot of joy is the work with the DMC, the Deep Medicine Circle. So we are a women of color led, worker directed nonprofit um, that is healing the wounds that we've identified in our book, um, healing the wounds of colonial capitalism through food, through medicine, through story, through learning and unlearning and restoration. Um, our work right now, we are, um, our cornerstone project is this farming as medicine work where we work to get land back to indigenous people through our land back solidarity program. We reframe farmers as health stewards, not only of the nutritious food they grow, but through how they take care of the soil. We decommodify food and we reframe food as medicine, or I should say we reassert it because it has been in all of our cultures um, before those things were purposefully separated. And so that work in, in our collective has been so inspiring. I'm working to get back a 38-acre um, parcel of land back to Ramadashaloni elder Kata Gomes. She formed her land trust recently with the help of our um, Land Back Solidarity Program Director, Hasmi Gagamian. Um, and that that is just beautiful to hear the elders sit and talk about, let's get those cows off that land across the way and bring the tuli elk back. Let's bring the beaver back. Let's bring the salmon back. 
um, the assertion that she and her family with 200 words will start learning their language. Um, it's just magical. It's beautiful. It's inspiring. It's so healing on every level. It's healing. So every time we're down at the farm and I get to hear the flicker or hear the mountain lion or see the lynx or watch the hawks giving birth to the next generation. We had four hawks last year. There's, you can see there's clearly more babies in that nest coming. Um, it's just beauty. And all the food we'll be growing will be just giving away to our community members in San Francisco who are oppressed by the manufactured crisis of hunger. So this is this is the work. This is the exciting um, opportunity. And and we all must find ways um, to, to do this kind of work. Uh, what we'll be doing over the next three years is creating a toolkit to share with communities around um, Turtle Island to share what we did so that people can apply what what they can to their communities to construct similar um, or or take what they can and leave what they don't want um, to help move land back into a, a, a thing that heals, not a thing that harms. Um, and so that's what that's what we're working on right now. It's, and that brings me tremendous joy. All right, that is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please check out Rupa and Raj's new book, Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org, and while you're there, click the Donate button to support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. This Agents of Change podcast was written and produced by Karthik Amarnath, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of our team, Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas-Vanhorn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Hannah Seal. Our music is now sung by Pottington Bear. We would like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the new program homepage, agentsofchangeinej.org. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Senior Agents of Change Fellow Elgin Avila, a PhD student studying industrial hygiene at the University of Minnesota and the founder of Equitable Health Solutions. Have a great week, folks.